Well, I want to start this morning with a quiz. I like to do this from time to time. And uh, yeah, you like this, huh? Jonathan, you got it? Okay, I think you kids... In fact, Jonathan, you might be primed for this quiz. Actually, I kind of I kind of think so. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to show you a picture on the screen. I want you to identify it. Okay, tell me whatever you can about it. And then uh, afterwards, i got seven pictures I'm going to show... And then they're kind of along a theme. And I think the theme will probably be obvious. And so if you know the theme, go ahead and uh, shout that out as well. Okay, so here's the first picture. Super easy. Okay, you can shout it out if you know what it is. What is this? The Great Pyramid of Giza. Very good. It's the largest Egyptian pyramid ever built. Built 4,500 years ago. It's It's a tomb for Pharaoh Khufu. Two million, more than two million limestone and granite blocks, each of which weigh two tons is an average of that. 450 feet tall is the tallest man-made structure for thousands of years. Still uh, stands today. Okay, here's, here's a second picture I have for you. This one's going to be a little more difficult. That was like super easy. This one's a little more difficult. Okay, what is this? Statue of Zeus. You know this, all right? Uh, where is it? Statue of Zeus at Olympia. Wow, good stuff. Zeus was the, the king, uh, the, the god of sky and, and thunder in Greek mythology. The king of the gods, uh, Mount Olympus, as a result, he had his own temple, the Temple of Zeus there at Olympia. And this statue here was over 40 feet tall, a wooden frame with some slabs of ivory on top of that with gold plated all around. It lasted about 800 years. So this is kind of what they think it may have looked like. It was eventually um, destroyed in the 5th century AD. I think people pillaged it for the, the gold all right, next one. The Colossus of Rhodes. Good. All right, this is Rhodes is a, is a, is a Greek island. Um, in fact, it's, it appears in the scriptures. I think it's coming up in Acts chapter 20. It's a statue, this was, of, of uh, the, the sun god Helios, made of bronze and iron, about like the Statue of Liberty. In fact, even some tell. The Statue of Liberty, maybe it looked like that a little bit. Built just after 300 B.C. near the entrance of the harbor at Rhodes. It stood for only 50 years till an earthquake came and toppled it in 226 B.C. But it was so impressive that its ruins lay on the ground for 800 years. And people came from all around the world to, to look at it, to see all around the world. Now, tradition holds that um, Rhodes was a statue one foot on either side of the entrance to the port, but most scholars think that was not possible, especially as it collapsed and fall. They didn't have the, the uh, engineering to pull that up so they could watch that on the, on the land for 800 years. So they think it was um, like, like the first picture I showed you. Okay, anyone, anyone catch a theme what we're looking at here? The seven wonders of the ancient world. Assist a, basically a list of seven notable structures that were... Uh, this list was compiled about 100 years before Christ came. They're basically the must-see... Uh, sites for tourists that would go and travel uh, around the world. You got to see these seven sites, and we've seen uh, three of them so far. It's sort of it's entirely subjective, right? But every um, every structure built here, it was had to be um, just impressive, as these seven were identified as wonders of the ancient world. Now there could have been some, and the only one that's left, by the way, is the the Great Pyramids at at uh, Giza. Okay, here this one. Lighthouse of Alexandria. Where is this? Alexandria. And where's Alexandria? Like northern Egypt, right? It was, it was built around 280 BC, 350 feet tall. About 100 feet square on, on that uh, rotund there. And the apex, there was a, a mirror during the day to uh, shine its light for the, for the boats. And by, by night, they burned a fire up there so to help the, the boats as they... Um, as they navigate in the court into the into the bay, and like the Colossus at Rhodes, it was destroyed by multiple earthquakes uh, over a period of time. The last one, thirteen hundred A.D., um, and it was it was basically all gone. All right, next. These are the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, they were described by one who saw them. Is this okay? An ascending series of tiered gardens containing a wide variety of trees, shrubs, vines resembling a large green mountain constructed of red, of mud bricks. And of note here, this one, this exact location is unknown, but most scholars believe they did exist 
because of all the ancient writers who spoke about these gardens and how, how glorious these tiered gardens were over 150 feet high. Alright, how about this one? Stumped you! How's that? Avon, you know this one. The mausoleum. Good. With kind of team effort here. That's right, right? Group think. That was really good. The mausoleum at Harna. Halicarnassus, which is basically, do you know where that is? Yeah, do you know where that is today? It's basically in Turkey. It's a Bodrum, Turkey. Um, basically, it's a tomb built around 350 BC for a man named Mausolus and his sister. He was up in the Archimede Empire, 150 feet high, and its four sides were just adorned with all these sculptures. Um, the top had 36 colonnades in it, and on the very top there was a horse chariot with four horses made of marble, and it was also destroyed by earthquakes over the centuries. Okay, we got one last one. This is perfect. Like the easy ones first, then you know all these others, and then this one is not well, sort of well known. Not the Acropolis. This is a lot bigger than the Acropolis, by the way. The Acropolis is in Athens. Is it different? The Parthenon? No, it's not the Parthenon. It's on the Acropolis. Not the Parthenon. It looks like the Parthenon, but way bigger. It's a temple. Temple of Diana. Temple of Artemis. Diana is the Greek name. Uh, Diana is the Roman name, rather. Artemis is the Greek name. It was located near where? Ephesus. All right, maybe you understand why I'm talking about these a little bit. It was 450 feet long. 225 feet wide, 60 feet high. We're talking 16 football fields in this thing. Just to support that roof would have been amazing. It had 125 columns, pillars, all around the perimeter. It was, it was built for the great goddess Artemis. She was a twin sister of Apollo, uh, a goddess in the hunt. Artemis was known as the goddess of fertility, with her many-breasted chest was, was there. The wealth and splendor of this temple was really taken as evidence of the power of Artemis. And, and people, large number of people would travel the world in order to come and see this great temple at Artemis. Um, and, and those at Ephesus sort of claimed this goddess, Diana or Artemis, as, as their own god. They're very proud of housing the temple there. Uh, they, they built for her, and they had a lot of um, silversmiths and artisans make a lot of money. I saw the tourists come around, and they were right there, and they made these these little statues like this one of, of Diana, of Artemis. And, and of all the seven wonders of the ancient world, perhaps this one was the most grand. Uh, one of the ancient Greeks' poets said about the temple, quote, Antipater was his name, he said this, I have set eyes on the wall of the lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand." In other words, this was a, a sight to behold. And um, well, I, I tell you all this because this temple here comes up in the Bible. It, it comes up in Acts chapter 19 that we are studying today. So you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 if, if you want to. And we're going to see the gospel coming and shaking to its very foundation, just the, the core of the religion here at Ephesus. And, and really, it's what the gospel does. When it comes, it, it, it disrupts and disturbs people. It confronts sin, and it shows us our guilt, and it shows us their only hope is in faith in the Lord Jesus who bore our bodies, who bore us our sin in his body on the cross. So the title of my message this morning is, The Gospel Confronts a Wonder of the World. It comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. And um, before I read it for you, you just need to have some backdrop here a little bit. For two years at Rock Valley Bible Church, we're working our way through the book of Acts, basically paragraph by paragraph, uh, all the way. Uh, but we took an extended break this summer because I was gone on vacation. And then we looked at the Alleluia Psalms, and then we had a couple weeks on anxiety. 
And, uh, but now we're back. But we've been gone for three months from the book of Acts. And when we left Acts, we left it in Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. This is a great, great verse. It says, So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Today we're really going to pick it up right in the next verse. But with such an extended period of time away, I think it's good to review a little bit about where we are in Acts to catch up to speed. Um, I, I want to go really all the way back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. In which Luke, the, the author, describes this. He says to the disciples, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, as you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And, and from this phrase, we get this, this key of the book of Acts, to be my witnesses, right? To tell others of Jesus. Jesus said that the disciples would be my witnesses, and I think the big grand application of the book of Acts is that all of us would be witnesses of Jesus. To tell others of Christ. Not merely to let people go into the jail and tell people of Jesus and us applaud them on. That's not what Acts is telling us about. Not just to watch the apostles or watch others, but for each of us to go ourselves into places where people don't know the gospel and tell others of Jesus. Now, the promise here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the Holy Spirit that comes upon the disciples to empower them for ministry in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that is a great outline of the book of Acts. We see the, the witness in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters of Acts when Peter and Paul preached. And thousands repented of their sins and, and believed and trusted in Jesus, the only name which salvation can be found in our prayer meeting this morning. We read in Acts chapter 4, just to stir our hearts to pray, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And just really prayed about, we talked about the exclusivity of Christ in what we speak with people. Jesus is the only way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way. And that message was preached in Jerusalem. But after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the gospel spread. It spread to Judea and Samaria, where again, we see many people believing in this message of repentance and forgiveness the apostles preached. Judea is the area around Jerusalem, and Samaria is the area to the north, and that's chapters 8 through 12 of Acts. And then by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, right, we begin the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth. And that's where we meet uh, these maps that I've talked to you about. It's the church, Acts chapter 13, begins with a church in Antioch, that, that great church which sent out Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. And they, they went to the island of Cyprus, and they went through southern Galatia, and then they came back again and back to the church in, in Antioch. And along the way, they preached Jesus to the church at city in Antioch. They, they preached that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus. And many believed and were baptized and organized into churches on that trip. Acts 13 and 14. And then at the end of Acts chapter 15, we, we see Paul again being sent out from that same church in Antioch. And uh, this time his ministry expanded a little bit. Uh, but he went out this time with, with Silas in Acts chapter 16 through 18. Tells us how they, they passed through southern Galatia to visit the people that they had, had seen come to Christ. And they visited them. And then they went off into Macedonia and Achaia, establishing churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. Along the way, they faced great opposition, often being kicked out of the city. But again, many believed. And in like Acts chapter 18 verse 8, we hear what happened in Corinth. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And finally, they, they returned home to Antioch, uh, where they stayed there for a short time. And then uh, towards the end of chapter 18, we see Paul uh, leave out once again. Uh, we see him come there from Antioch, and he launches his third missionary journey. He initially heads north up through Cilicia, through southern Galatia, and basically lands in Ephesus, the really the capital city of Asia, Asia Minor. That's where modern day Turkey is, is, is where he was. And throughout all of Acts chapter 19, we're going to see Paul in Ephesus. And so we saw him three months ago in Ephesus. And, um, that really started in, in, uh, Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And we saw him, if you look at verse 8, we saw him in the synagogue speaking boldly for three months to those Jews there, but then when he faced enough opposition, then he backed off of that, and then he spent two whole years in the hall of Tyrannus where he preached the gospel. 
for two years, kind of in this public hall. And, and most people think that he, he preached during the siesta time, you know, like uh, Latin America, when it's so hot during the day, they often take a siesta. Well, that's when Paul really had the opportunity every afternoon to preach and teach about Jesus. And during this time, verse 11 says that extraordinary miracles were taking place by the hands of Paul. And just some amazing things were taking place. His work clothes were being brought to the sick and they were being healed. And, and a demon was able to overcome seven brothers who were trying to exercise the demon. And I just need to parentheses here. You know, last time, I, I think I erred on this text. I seem to indicate that the, the demons came out of this man. Um, but really, I think that it's probably better that this man, just powered by the Spirit, was enough to, to really overpower these seven brothers, just the demon there. But that was the power of Christ. And, 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 and at, at, at Ephesus, there's such repentance that took place that the occult even was coming to Christ. They burned all their books containing secrets of the magic arts and, and how many of them was, was much value as they had this big bonfire confessing their sins and turning their, their books over and burnt up before the Lord. And a good summary comes in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so that's where we are. Paul's in the middle of his third missionary journey. He's been in Ephesus now. He's, and we're going to see him in Ephesus again today. In Acts chapter 19. So I want to read our text and watch how the gospel confronts a wonder of the world. Acts chapter 19, 21 through 41. It's kind of a, a lengthy text, but after a lengthy introduction, but we'll get through it. So now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand and wanting to make a defense of the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, this is what happens when the gospel confronts a wonder of the world. I want to organize our thoughts here this morning basically under four words. Uh, the first word is this, plans. And that's what we see in verses 21 and 22. We see Paul making his plans for future ministry. It says, now after these events, 
that is, after everything, all the, the big bonfire in Ephesus, after he had been there in the synagogue for three months, and he'd been teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years, and all these miraculous, extraordinary miracles were taking place. After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, again, if we look this up on, on the map, we see where Paul wants to go, right? He wants to go into Macedonia to visit places like Philippi, where he'd been before. And he, he wants to go into Achaia to visit the church in Corinth. And, and then having been there, he wants to continue back to Jerusalem. And then once he gets to Jerusalem, he wants to get off on to Rome. He says, I must see Rome. And that's exactly what Paul did. So this is sort of a sort of a, a quick outline of his third missionary journey. He's going to go around Macedonia and Achaia. He's not exactly going to go this way back. He's going to stop along the way. But this is general. He's going to go to Jerusalem and uh, eventually he's going to get to Rome. He's going to get to Rome not like he intended to as a, as a, as a free man. He's actually going to be going as a, a slave as he's captured. And, and it's interesting. This is the rest of the book of Acts. This is what we're going to study. So we, we study Acts chapter 20 and 21 and 22 all the way through 28. 28 ends with him in Rome under house arrest as a prisoner. Before we move on, though, I, I, just, I just want to point out that, that Paul didn't want to go to see all these cities as a tourist to see their wonders. He didn't say, oh, I want to go into Macedonia, right, so I can see this great wonder at Philippi. Or he said, I didn't want to go to, a, he didn't say, I want to go to Achaia, right, where I can see that great isthmus, or, or I want to go there for the games. He didn't go there as a tourist. He didn't see the beauties of the landscapes, or the niceties of a beach, or the architecture. He went there to be a witness for Jesus, to spread the gospel of Christ. And this he did all the way till he got to Rome. When he was in Rome, he continued to, to preach there as well. Now, before he left Ephesus, he, uh, he sent some people ahead, Timothy and Erastus there in verse 22. So he's kind of sending them ahead. He didn't have Google. He couldn't make his reservations at his hotels or whatever. He couldn't, couldn't book his travel plans. So he sent these guys ahead just to prepare the way for things. Now, again, if you know the whole story of the, the New Testament, you will know that, that one of the things, the reasons why Paul wanted to go to Macedonia and Achaia was to, to gather together a collection of money to take it to the poor, suffering saints in Jerusalem who had financial need. And so I think that these guys were going ahead to prepare even the way for the, uh, for the collections to be taking place, for the offerings to be taking place, that Paul might be able to give to those who are um, in financial need. And it's really the heart of Paul. See, Paul didn't w- love with word only, just preaching the gospel. He loved with deed as well. And, and really, that's what we see here. When, when he's sending these guys off, to put together, we don't have time to put together everything in the New Testament with that, but he's preparing the way, going to these places because he wants to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And, and, and I really think a great application for this is the, the hike for life. As uh, Amanda came up and promoted that today, I, I think here, th- this is the same sort of thing, an opportunity for us to support the poor and needy in our city, women who have unplanned pregnancies, who are vulnerable and in need of help. And so going to this event helps raise awareness about things. A giving to this hike is a way you can demonstrate your help for the needy. And I am thankful for Rock Valley Bible Church, how we have gathered around Amanda and her leadership of this. For so the past few years, like during the Hike for Life, I've, I don't know what to do with these things. I haven't done, they just kind of sit on my shelf. I don't even display them, right? But here's a, it says Hike for Life Pregnancy Care Center Rockford 2019 Top Fundraising Team. Rock Valley Bible Church. And this was, I think they skipped one 2020. I think they skipped it because of COVID. But here, the Lowest Dixon Memorial Hike for Life 2021, Love Leaves a Legacy. Pregnancy Care Center of Rockford, top fundraising team. Of all the churches in Rockford, all the big churches in Rockford, I don't know how that worked, Amanda, that we gave more than all the other churches in Rockford. That blows me away. Maybe maybe it's small churches. I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's a Gishel team. I, I, I don't know what it is. But what, you've been generous. You've been giving to the needy, just like Paul was trying to gather this collection for the needy in, in, Ephesus, in, in Jerusalem. So I thank you for that. And we encourage you to come. I encourage you to keep fanning that flame and just be generous. And what's interesting, this money is not, not coming through our offering box. It's not coming through us, the church. 
This is money that comes because you're giving there, so it's not even recorded on anything that we do, which which is wonderful. Right? I just over the years just encourage you to be giving people. We in America are wealthy beyond beyond any of the world's standards. We ought to be giving people, and you are, and I thank you for that. And that's what Paul wanted to do. He remembered the words of the Lord Jesus, more blessed to give than to receive, and that's what he was trying to do. A great application for us here. All right. So my next word here, with Timothy and Erastus off to Macedonia, we see a disturbance in verses 23 through 27. So he's made his plans, and now while he was there, there was a disturbance. This is when the, the gospel confronts the, the wonder of the world. Verse 23 we read, At that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Okay, so if he says no little disturbance, that means what? Help me. Big disturbance. There was a, a big disturbance there in Ephesus. It was large. It all had to do with the way. Now, the way is how um, many referred to Christians. Um, they, they referred to them as, as the way. And often it's, it's those outside who are calling them. In fact, Christians, even that word, is from people outside identifying these people as the Christians. And, and this is a similar thing, right? The, they're, they're, they're talking about the way, right? The, the way to God. We saw back in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was in the synagogues. He was looking for anyone who following after the way. Um, but here we see the Jews. In fact, we saw that back in Acts chapter 19 as well. Um, in verse 9. Some became stubborn and continued unbelief, and speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So here's the way. They didn't like the way. Um, but the Jews, right, calling it the way, caught the message of Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's the reality of the gospel. Jesus isn't merely a way to God. He isn't merely a path. He's the way. He's the only way. Because in Jesus is the only way that our sin problem can be resolved. Right? No other religion except for Christianity has a solution to the sin problem. How, how we can pay and atone for our sins before a holy God. Because we have Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for us. He died upon the cross to pay penalty for our sins. This is the way. This is the exclusive way. And any time you ex- preach about the exclusive way, oftentimes persecution will come. And that's what's coming, this disturbance. Um, Paul and his, his message was actually a threat to their pocketbooks. And uh, you want to see people riled up, you get them in their pocketbooks. Uh, I remember talking to a financial counselor at one time, not you, Gary, but I'm sure you have the same thing, right? When people's pocketbooks, are, their, their savings accounts start going down, right? There's a lot of angst and anger and disturbance, Right? And so, so like right here, right, they're hitting their, their pocketbooks, and verse 24 and following really tell us about the nature of this disturbance. It, it centers around this man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. He made silver shrines of Artemis to sell at the temple with all these visitors coming from all over the world to make his own money. But Paul, in the message he preached about Christ, was a threat. As people were believing and trusting in Jesus, then fewer and fewer people were going to be incentivized to buy they're idols. And so Demetrius gathered together his, his union, his workmen together in an effort to unite them against Paul. And here's his union speech. He says in verse 25, he says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And here's where the Gospels confronting one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Demetrius fears that this, this little Saul of Tarsus, and by the way, everything that we have, a description about Paul, maybe it's traditional, is that he wasn't such a, a huge giant man. He was kind of a more small, imposed, not even imposing figure, just kind of this small intellectual type guy. And, and here is a great temple of Artemis, and they're scared about this little Paul and the message that he is preaching. I, I love how he's describing how, how dire the situation is in, in verse 27. He says that, that, that the temple of the goddess Artemis may topple because of Paul. And this great goddess may be counted as nothing. And she might be deposed from her magnificence. One who's worshipped in all of Asia, indeed all the world, all the world is coming to see this God. And, and this little Jewish man 
who believes in this Messiah, and it's talking about the way, and particularly his message that gods made with hands are no gods at all, might bring the world, might bring our great temple down. What an astonishing thing. It's a display of the power of the gospel, which I reply this, right? Okay, Demetrius. Demetrius, right? Yeah, Demetrius. If Artemis is so great, why do you need to defend her? <laughs> well, why not let her defend herself? If she's so great. I mean, I think about our God, right? As believers in Jesus, we don't have to spend our time defending our God. Uh, Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He can defend Himself quite well apart from us. And I think even particularly as believers in Jesus, we don't need to defend Him. Because our faith is really predicated upon trusting God to vindicate us. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He didn't try to vindicate himself. In fact, you remember on the cross, he faced all sorts of insults, and, and, and people were slapping him and beating him, and he entrusted himself to God. He, he, he didn't defend himself. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. The picture of Jesus on the cross was one who was suffering great injustice and he didn't lash back at all. And in fact, in First Peter, the, the verse right before what I read, First Peter 2.21 says that Jesus in his suffering left an example for us. So when we suffer, we ought to suffer like Jesus, like just entrusting ourselves to God, entrusting ourselves, First Peter 4.19, to a faithful creator in doing what's right. We just, we just trust ourselves to God. We, of all people in Christianity, don't need to defend God, unlike the Muslims who feel like they need to defend Muhammad at every turn. You insult Muhammad, people are going to come after you. People insult us and insult our Christ. We're like, well, that's par for the course. It's okay, we don't need to defend. But here, right, you see the weakness of the God when someone thinks they need to defend the God. And here is Demetrius feels this need to defend Artemis. And he confirms that he understands Paul's message. Verse 26, God's made with hands are not God's at all. God made with hands are not God's at all. Listen, but when someone's livelihood is at stake, logic goes out the window. They don't think clearly oftentimes. And when sin right, reigns in the heart, thinking goes astray. You just need to think about that for your own life. Think about that in people you counsel. I've seen it many, many times. The pastor, right? When, when sin is in the heart and there, just the thinking goes amok. The, the people don't think clearly. Even here, Demetrius said, clearly, God's made with hands are not God's at all. That's exactly the point. But we need to defend this God. It's all silly. But I do think it's really applicable for us. I mean, a great illustration in our days is the striking down of Roe v. Wade. So I think about the hike for life coming up, just even thinking about that. People are so entrenched in their sin that they fail even to admit that life begins in the womb. They won't even admit that. I mean, if you talk to a pro-lifer, I'm sorry, a pro-choice person, someone who wants abortion, they, they know that to admit that life is in the womb destroys everything. Yet, this is crystal clear. People say, oh, we trust the science. <laughs> Why don't you trust the science on this one? one? One website just wrote this way. Science teaches that without reservation, life begins at fertilization. It's conception. It's a scientific fact that an organism exists after fertilization that did not exist before. This new organism has its own DNA distinct from the mother and father, meaning it's a unique person. As the embryo grows... It develops a heartbeat 22 days after fertilization, its own circulatory system, and its own organs. From fertilization, it's a new organism that is alive and will continue to grow and develop as long as nutrition is provided and its life is not ended through violence or illness. It is indisputably human. It has human DNA. Like People often want to follow the science. Follow the science, and yet they can't because their minds are warped in their sin and their fight to keep abortion legal. They will not admit any of this. And likewise with Demetrius. He knows full well that gods made with hands are not gods at all, yet he himself will not admit it. So he causes this 
disturbance, which then leads to a big confusion, which is my, my next word. It's what we see in verses 28 through 31, 34 rather. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. Right? Here's this disturbance that Demetrius puts out, and then all of a sudden this, this confusion. And, and see, it wasn't only Demetrius who was thinking this way. It was all his hearers, right? They heard their livelihood was at stake. They heard they couldn't sell their idols in the temple. It was going to be diminished. diminished. It was going to go down. And, and they responded by crying out, defending their God. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and they too felt the need to defend their God. Again, I put forth, if you need to defend your God, then your God is no God at all. Isn't that the definition of a God? Isn't, isn't a God like some higher power, even like Alcoholics Anonymous or something, right? Believe in some kind of higher power, right? Believe in some kind of God, right? Believe in some... I mean, just the, the broadest of definition, it's someone who's in the spiritual realm, maybe that's power over us that's greater than us. And yet, and yet here they're scared of just a simple message. In our case, right, our God is infinitely more powerful than we are. They hated the message of Paul. A mob began to form, shouts from everywhere. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then the mob went after the, the Christians. In verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Now, these two men were from Macedonia, and they had traveled with Paul. And so they identified these people with Paul and his companions. And they know, oh, this guy follows Paul. This guy follows Paul. Let, let's pull them out. And so they, they drug them into the theater and apparently they drag these men because they're unable to find Paul. This is a common tactic of mob violence. Um, in uh, First Thessalonians, you see that? They pulled out a man named Jason where Paul had been staying. But they couldn't quite find Paul. or what, They pull out someone they know. And, and without Paul, here's the next best thing. It's traveling companions. And their lives were at stake, I do believe. With, with mobs, you just never know what's going to happen with mobs and mob violence and the confusion that reigns. And we read in verse 30 that Paul wanted to go out to the crowds. But his disciples stopped him. And I think the disciples really were trying to save his life because they knew if he went into the theater as the ringleader of it all, the one who was turning the world upside down, right? the one whose message had gone out through all the whole world, that his life was at stake. So the disciples, naturally, they wanted to keep him safe. But it's interesting here in verse 31, even the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him, were urging him not to come and venture into the theater. The Asiarchs were not Christians, but they were like the wealthy families, the aristocracy, if you will. Um, they, they were wealthy families who promoted, right, they had the, of the sect, they promoted Caesar worship. Worship of the emperor was their own, their own religion, but somehow they become friends with Paul and surely heard his, his preaching and they saw the way he lived, but there's no indication here they believed in Jesus. But they loved Paul and, and, and they liked him and they wanted to save his life. And so here are these secular people even going in to try to save the life of Paul. People of influence trying to save the life of Paul. One commentator said that Luke, the author of, of Acts, put this statement here to say this, a sect whose leader had Asiarchs for friends cannot be dangerous to the state. Because, right, in other words, right, the Asiarchs were all about the continuation of the state, just like the oligarchs in Russia. They want, they want Russia to go well so they can be rich. And the Asiarchs here, the, the state has given them wealth, and so they're not going to be friends with anybody who's going to deny that and turn away from the, the state. Paul wasn't really a danger to the state, but he was a danger to the idol makers. And, and, and the confusion in verse 32, right, is, is apparent. Some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of all, and, and most of them did not even know why they'd come together. And this is mob mentality, right? You, you whip things up into a frenzy. There's this mob coming from all over the place. You don't even know why they're there. And, and people are like, whoa, there's this big crowd. So I'm just picturing this Ephesian artisan, right? This craftsman. He's in his, he's in his workshop doing something or building something. All of a sudden, he hears this roar of this crowd. And he's like, God, I, I, I wonder what that is. And so he goes and joins. And his fellow, whatever, woodworkers or whatever, go and other people in shops, you know, tent makers or whatever, they're going and all of a sudden they're in this crowd and most of them, as it says, do not even know why they had come because most of them just heard the frenzy and kind of joined right along the way. And soon even the Jews from the synagogue wanted to calm the crowds, right? Because they essentially had the same message Paul did. The Jews believed that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And so they put forth, verse 33 said, they put forth Alexander, 
And, the Jew, and, and Alexander, right, motioning his hand, wanted to give a defense to the crowd. So here's this crowd in an uproar. They're saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right, why do you do that? He's trying to calm them down, right? It's kind of like a quarterback when, he, when he's there, right? And, and then the crowds are loud. He's trying to calm them down, calm them down so my guys can hear the play. But they're contrary, right? And so they want, they want to be really loud. So they're kind of at a visiting stadium, if you will. And Alexander trying to make it down. But, but when they recognized he was Jewish and he kind of had the same message and they didn't really understand so much about Jews and Christians and what the difference was between Alexander and Paul. And, and uh, they knew that Alexander was a Jew. They knew about the synagogue, but they didn't understand this. And, and they just uproared all the more. They said, right, without, with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. How long did they say that for? Do you see that in the text? How long? Two hours. All right. Should we demonstrate that? <laughs> no, we're not going to demonstrate that. I'm just going to have you just think about it. I just want you to think about what that would be like. For two hours, just this uproar. And you can stop anybody from talking if you just speak loud enough. You just, you just overspeak people, and that's what's happening. And, and that was the confusion in the city. Such was the anger of those who would resist the religion of the city. And again, I'm thinking about the abortion industry, just with the hike for life coming up in a couple of weeks. And I, I think that we see in our day and age a similar sort of hatred turned against pregnancy care centers. In fact, I read this week of an attack upon Compass Care Pregnancy Services in New York State. Early in the morning, June 7th, so June, July, August, September, so maybe three months ago or so, um, people broke into this center by smashing glass uh, from the street, and they lit Molotov cocktails, right, that we hear about in the war in uh, Ukraine, Basically bottles with gas, you put them in and then you throw them in and they break and they explode all over. They, they, they threw those in the place. They spray painted graffiti on the walls that said Jane was here. It's a group called Jane's Revenge. You know, basically we have reference to the Jane Doe of, of Roe v. Wade. And, and here's a, here's a picture of the office after the damage. You see there on the left, you see just the glass being broken in and you see the printer being busted up and I, I don't know who exactly that is. Um, He's like the director of the of the center there. No arrests have been made, though about fifty of these attacks have taken place across our land. And to me, it like it makes zero sense because as I think about pregnancy care centers, I think about how they just they love. That's that's all they do. In fact, if if I've had any concern about pregnancy care centers, okay, this is not to critique. I understand not more. But it's a, the gospel maybe isn't so front and center. But, but, but love is dominant, and the gospel's there. But like, like what the world sees is just love. Care for women, care for children, giving away free ultrasounds, free baby clothes, diapers, free counseling to help people manage the crisis of their lives. Just giving and pouring themselves out. Funny, I mean, never cost anybody a dime. And yet they're the object of hate. It makes no sense except when you realize that their pocketbooks are, are beginning to be attacked here a little bit. The abortion clinics are going to lose on this deal. And, and by the way, these pregnancy care centers, it's not like they're the ones deciding the matters in the courts, but they're the ones being hated. All because people want to defend the right to kill innocent lives in the womb. I think it's very much like the Apostle Paul. Like he loved people, he cared for them. He brought them a message of love and hope for all who'd believe, and yet he was hated. You know, that's how it is with the gospel. Some will love it and some will hate it. Um, when, when Paul was in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, I think it's chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, When I came among you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified, just coming and preaching the gospel. And yet what was the response? To those who are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, it is... The power of God, but to those who are perishing, they think it's foolish. They think the gospel's foolish. Like there's two responses. And then Second Corinthians chapter two, I think is this. He talks about how the gospel is this aroma that, that comes out. And and it's 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 the aroma of victory. It's it's the aroma of of going off and winning a war and then coming back and, and burning the incense on a parade. 
And, and when people, the crown, crowd, the hometown, see that and see the prisoners of war walking down the way, they're excited. They smell that aroma and are super excited. It's like life to life. We've conquered. We've won the war. But to the prisoners who are walking along that parade to their death, that same smell is from death to death. And so likewise with the gospel of Christ, when it comes, some will love it and embrace it and enjoy it. I mean, that's the only reason you come here on Sunday mornings. It's because you love the gospel. You love Christ. But people will hate it and they'll go to great hostility against it. And so I just say this, as you witness with people, and if you ever get to the point where you talk about the exclusivity of Christ, where he is the way, the truth, and the life, you'll face some opposition. You'll face some rejection. So, so expect it. Expect the opposition. Expect the persecution. Even when it makes no human sense at all, because people just hate the message of Christ and him crucified. It's death to them. It's foolish to them. All right, one last word. Quiet. This is when everything calms down. Uh, we see the town clerk coming and, and quieting the crowds. And we have no reason to believe at all that this clerk was a believer. Uh, he was simply the voice of reason with some authority. So the, the town clerk was maybe like the mayor or maybe the, the key administrator. He was known by a lot of these people, right? Better Business Bureau, all these people you know, who were working in the idols like worked through him. Maybe he managed some of the, of the, uh, the temple matters. Maybe. But this town clerk somehow, what Alexander couldn't do, this man did, he quieted a crowd, and then he gave a speech. He says in verse 35, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? By the way, there's probably a meteor that, that landed in Ephesus, and they kind of saw it as a confirmation a little bit of the temple there. So they we're keepers of that, right? Everyone knows that we're keepers of that. But, but seeing then that these things cannot be denied, that we are keepers of the temple, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. In other words, he basically said this. He put all that together. He says there are legal ways to fight this. You don't have to form a mob. In fact, you might be guilty of forming a mob. Like the courts are open. Come and deal with it in the courts. And so in our day. Think about my application. I've been focused on the abortion issue. So too is the application. Like if, if we're dealing with the matters of abortion, we don't need to form mobs right, against the abortion clinics. As evil, as awful as that is. We, we have the legal means to do that. We don't need to bomb the abortion clinics. We don't need to threaten the doctors and the nurses with violence if they continue on their way. We simply need to plug away, praying and working through legal opportunities, voting, politics, how it's been done, and fight for life of the unborn. And that's been fought for 50 years that way. And just with Roe v. Wade crumbling this, just, this past summer, it has paid off. Yet still, the battle is there. It just says basically now it's all the states. And we in Illinois have a big battle. In Rockford, we have a big battle because we can become the place where people from Wisconsin come down. And there's a big push. I'm not sure if you've been reading the paper in recent days. There's a big push for, a, for a, an abortion clinic to come back in Rockford. I remember the day when it left Rockford. What a great day it was. And it may come back. But we conquer it through legislation. We conquer it through prayer. We conquer it through peaceful means, not by mob violence. And so we need to use every legal opportunity with us. And it's interesting here, isn't it, that, that Paul never defended himself before the crowds. He never had to defend his message. It was the town clerk who defended Paul. It was the public servant. It was the government official who was there because God established him. There's no authority, but that has not been established by God. This town clerk was there established by God. He defended Paul, even verse 37, saying these men are neither sacrilegious nor are they blasphemers of our goddess. And then apparently in Paul's preaching and teaching ministry in, in, in Ephesus, right, he wasn't just bashing that temple, right? He wasn't, oh, look how bad that is. I think he was maybe silent about it a little bit. He certainly was provoked. Remember in Acts 17 when he saw all the idols in the city, he was provoked in his heart. But I think that Paul just went on his way, preaching Christ, right? 
preaching the true God, the living God, probably preaching about idols, and they're drawing their own conclusions about the temple of Artemis. And just naturally then they're pulling away. And I think that's likewise with the abortion issue, that when people come to Christ and understand and see, they'll just naturally pull away from that. As more and more news gets out about how horrific things are, people will see, and it's back to the states, that people will see and vote according to their conscience. That's why we need God to stir hearts of people to do that, not violence. We need to seek quiet. When it comes to our efforts to be witness for Christ, I really just encourage you to do the same. You don't need to bash the political system. A lot of people think that being bold for Christianity means to write, preach politics and write, preach the right wing. I don't think Paul was doing that. I don't think he was complaining about how bad things were today, decrying every move of every politician. I don't think he was doing that. He simply preached Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And really, in many ways, Paul, in coming to town, he stirred up waves. I don't, his desire wasn't to stir the waves. This, this commotion that came about wasn't Paul. It was Demetrius. Our desires, believers, ought to be to live quietly and meekly. First Thessalonians 4, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent upon no one. And I think that's what Paul was doing. He's just going to school. Whoever wants to come and listen, come and listen to school. He's going out and talking to people in the marketplace. He was talking with them about Jesus. But he wasn't, I don't think, just bashing the place. And the public servant came to his defense. So let's step back. Let's think about what happened to the temple of Artemis. It was no match for the gospel. The gospel came and confronted the temple of Artemis. The gospel today is going strong. In Love's Park, in Rockford, around the world, you'll always find believers every place. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, didn't last. It was burned and plundered in A.D. 400. I said, what a great picture there of those who oppose the gospel. Well, likewise perish. They will go away. But those who embrace the gospel will continue on forever as we live with Christ in eternity. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you came to give us life and that we might have it abundantly. God, that in Jesus is our hope. I I thank you even here how Paul did not need to defend himself. We don't need to defend ourselves, but merely live righteously, love others, tell them of Christ, how their hope may be found in him. God, and you will take care of defending yourself quite well. Thank you very much. Father, I thank you for the example of Paul and his ministry here in Ephesus and all that it has to teach us. And just as I have highlighted the abortion issue as it seems to be so parallel in our text today, I pray for the hike for life two weeks from now. God, that you would raise many funds to just continue to help support the, the people that work there who just pour themselves out and just love and serve those in distress. I pray you protect the uh, pregnancy care center here in Rockford. pray that you would keep an abortion clinic out of our city, that blood not might not be on our land. Uh, God, and you can do it. We can even see what you did in Ephesus. You threatened the temple of Artemis just by simple preaching of the gospel. I pray that you would threaten the abortion industry simply by our preaching of the gospel. But it's in your time, it's your way, and that's what we plead, that's what we long for. Help us to walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.